we've been talking about God's relationship to Israel. And they are a disobedient and contrary people. Romans 10, 21. But of Israel, God says, All day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. And so what has God done to Jewish people at this point in redemptive history? Paul says that um, God has given them a spirit of stupor. He has blinded their eyes. Um, he has given them deaf ears. And he has made the very thing they trust in, the table that they set, become a stumbling block for them. Jews are hardened people, Paul is saying. They're rejecting their Messiah. So the question is, has God given up on Israel forever? And does he despise Jewish people now because they have rejected him? Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that, having just read the passages I quote you, quoted you. But here the question is, one: it's one of ultimacy. God has not permanently rejected Jewish people. He wants them, just like Gentiles, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? He, wa- he would that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But why, why not? Why has he not specifically rejected the Jews who have rejected the Christ? Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. I read, you, or read this to you last week. But this really typifies God's relationship, eternal relationship with Israel. He says, For you are not a people holy to the Lord your or for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So God has not rejected Israel forever because he is keeping the oath that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there remains a chance, even for hardened, blinded Jews who are in a stupor, to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul, in this passage, comes alongside that hope and wants us to get on board with it. He wants us Gentiles to get on board with the Jewish hope for their salvation. So, we're going to start in verse 13 today. And you know what you are if you're not a Jew? What are you? You're a Gentile. So, God is speaking through Paul, by the Holy Spirit, to us specifically, who are not biological Jews in this passage. To not, and he, well, in, in history, speaking to Roman Gentiles, but this extends to us as well. Now, read with me verse 13. We'll go through verse 24. Paul says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection 
means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean from but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and, graft, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Amen. I was a banker in Bloomingburg. About year three, um, the Hasidic community, the Hasidic Jews came in and they kind of took over the area underhandedly and they kind of rigged elections in, in the community. And, um, and slowly and surely, they built houses and, and they built big, big um, monstrous uh, developments and, and, uh, and apartment buildings in this area that Bloomingburg didn't want. And they took over this small town and now that small town is, is overrun by Hasidics. And, and there is, you know, there's garbage on the streets and, and it's, it doesn't look good. Now, that is a Gentile attitude towards Jews, what I'm just articulating to you. Because now what, what follows from that? Is, and, and not only that, but they rejected their Messiah. And good riddance to them. That is a typical Gentile attitude towards Jewish people, not only today, but in the first century in Rome. So Paul in this passage is addressing this attitude of superiority to Jewish people. Now, now, I do think that sometimes um, what Hasidics do is, is not right, but that doesn't mean we don't care for souls. And so there is a tendency among us Gentiles to have a dismissive attitude towards Jewish people and the roots of salvation history. And Paul reminds the Roman Christians that they share, us Gentiles, we share in a very... Jewish salvation. And God has not entirely rejected the Jews. And he does, although he does not show partiality to them, 
they get in by faith just like we do. Nevertheless, he has not given up on them, and he has it in his mind to see more of his covenant, old covenant people come to a saving faith in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. So, two things I would like you to walk away with today. Number one, I would like to stir up within your mind, on the basis of this passage, a biblically informed eagerness to see Jewish people come to salvation in their Messiah. Number two, I want you as a Gentile to know your place in salvation history and not think too highly of yourself. Understand that we are part of a long, old, ancient story. So let's walk through this text together, verse by verse, and see what the Apostle Paul has to say, and the Holy Spirit has to say to us even today. Now, Gentiles, in the first few verses here, are told to get on board with the desire to see Jews saved. He says, Apostle Paul says, in verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, that's you and me. Inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Now the apostle Paul was struck down on the Damascus Road, and he was told that he would be going to kings, to Jews, and to Gentiles. And if you read Acts and Galatians, Peter and the disciples were apostles to the Jews, and Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. And if it were not for Paul's ministry, the, the church would not have spread like it did. God used Paul to spread the gospel to Gentile nations, Corinth and Galatia and Rome and, um, and uh, all over the Mediterranean world. Paul was spreading out the gospel to Gentiles. And so Paul says, I magnify my Gentile ministry. Why? In order to make my Jews jealous, my fellow Jews jealous. So why would it make, why would it make Jews jealous that Gentiles are coming to salvation? It is because Gentiles are sharing now in the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish forefathers. And so Paul wants his Gentile ministry to save Gentiles, but he also sees an indirect ministry to the Jews to try to get them to be jealous. Look at the world is coming to faith in the Messiah that you are rejecting. That's the idea, Paul says, in order to make my Jews jealous, my fellow Jews jealous, that I might save some of them. So Paul's heart is the salvation of the Jews as we saw from the beginning of chapter 9. In verse 15, he says, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Here Paul argues from the lesser to the greater. Remember we saw that Jewish rejection of Jesus has actually opened up salvation to the Gentiles. Look in verses, verse 11. So I ask then, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, that is, through the rejection of Jesus Christ, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. So, salvation for you and me 
has been opened up through Israel's rejection of Christ. And as I said last week, I suspect the idea here is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. He said to Abraham, you will be a blessing through your seed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And time and time again throughout the Old Testament, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they worshipped idols. And they constantly, they constantly participated in adultery against their God and their Savior. But that does not mean that God's promise does not stand. And God is, is, is as if as he's saying in this passage, No, you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Even if it's through your rejection of the Christ, I will make you a blessing. And I will give salvation to the Gentiles. And that is the way you'll be a blessing, even through your rejection, because God repurposes even evil and rejection of Christ for good. So, their rejection has meant the salvation of the world. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? You know what life for the dead is? For a Christian, it means the resurrection of the saints. It means the end. When Christ comes, and those who are dead in Christ rise first. And we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air with transformed bodies. And a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Paul believes that there is an end times hope. There is an eschatological hope attached to the inbringing of the salvation of many Jews. So one commentator summarizes Paul's thought here in those two verses. He says, Therefore, as Israel's trespass and rejection trigger the stage of salvation history in which God is specially blessing Gentiles, so Israel's fullness and acceptance will trigger the climactic end of salvation history. And Paul wants us to get on board with the notion that God wants Israel to be saved because of the promises he made to them, just as he wants Gentiles to be saved. And he wants us to have a non-boasting, humble, biblically informed, non-dismissive spirit towards Jews because of their inherit because they to them was given the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. To them belong the covenants. So he doesn't want us to say, good riddance, I'm glad, you know, we'll do away with you now. He wants us to have a heart, the same heart that Christ had when he sat up on the mountain and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, I would have gathered you together under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. That's the heart we are to have for Jews and Gentiles alike. So what is this preoccupation now with Israel? Why this preoccupation with Jewish people? I mean, if there is no more Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, why is Paul talking about this preoccupation? Now, we've already hinted at that, but he makes the, the matter plain in verse 16. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. 
In the Old Testament, how, first of all, how do you make food holy today when you eat? So you sit down, you make a nice steak dinner, you have your drink, your asparagus on the side, you know, your rice, you sit down with your family. How do you make that food holy as a Christian? By the word of God in prayer, right? The word of God means the gospel, freeing you from dietary restrictions and prayer, thanking God, knowing that it is given to us by his hand, and it's only through his provision that we can eat. We make food holy. Food is holy to the Lord as we eat it through prayer. That's how food is holy for a Christian. In the Old Testament, you would make your food holy by offering the first part to the Lord. And the rest you kept for yourself, and that was holy. So if the dough offered as first fruits, that means the first part of the dough you give to the Lord, that becomes holy, so is the rest, that whole lump. That's holy. That's the image here. And in the next part of that verse, he says, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. So you have a tree. If the root is holy, then everything that grows from that root the nutrients, the vitality that grows from the root to the branches producing fruit, that's all holy to the Lord. Michael Bird in his commentary says, Paul means that the holiness and belongingness of Israel, of Israel's patriarchal origins, extends even to Israel's current day Jews. The belongingness, they're the branches, but they belong to the root. And if the root, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was holy to the Lord, so are the branches. So the branches, the Jews, are beloved because of their roots. Look at verse 28 with me, lest you think I'm making that up or I'm incorrect theologically. I think that is exactly what Paul is saying. Verse 28, as regards to the gospel, yes, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Jewish people, ethnic Jewish people are beloved uniquely because of the forefathers. And God is keeping the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob thousands of years ago. So here's, here's the thing we need to understand as Christians. Jesus came not merely as the beginning of a new story, but as the fulfillment of an old story, all right? Not just the beginning of a new, but the fulfillment of an old. And you stand in a long line of saints. Look at Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Didn't just start with the disciples, but goes all the way back to Abraham. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So not merely, it is new. The new covenant is new, but it's not merely new. It's fulfillment. And the church does not replace Israel. It is the fulfillment of spiritual Israel. So it is as some people have said, some, some well-meaning preachers and Christians have said in the past, 
that we should unhitch from the Old Testament is so biblically reductionistic. Do you see that? It's, it's to miss out the first thousands of years of salvation history. Yes, the, the new covenant is new. And yes, the center of our salvation is Jesus Christ. And if I'm talking to an unbeliever or a new Christian, I'm not making them jump through the hoop of Genesis. I'm not necessarily telling them about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to Christ, the cross, the resurrection, and salvation in him. However, however, now having grown up in the Lord, you are scribes trained for the kingdom. You know what Jesus says about scribes, wise people trained for the kingdom of God? He says, every tribe, in Matthew 13, 52, every scribe, rather, who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So, biblically trained scribes, that's what I want us to be. We are scribes trained for the kingdom. And so our wisdom is an ancient wisdom. It, it is a history that goes all the way back, yes, to the beginning of time, but especially starting with the patriarch Abraham and extending to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we carry on this history. You know what history is? His story. We are part of his story. All right. Now, you Gentiles, and me too, having said that, we ought to know our place in salvation history, in redemptive history. In verse 17, Paul says, But if some of the branches, that is Jews, were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted back in, or grafted in among the others, and now you share in the newer nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant. So Gentiles are becoming part of a Jewish salvation, Paul's saying. You're becoming part of a Jewish salvation. You, ever, you know what the idea of grafting is? It's when you take a root, a base of a tree, and a branch, or I think it's called a scion or something in, in grafting terms, and you join the branch to the root so that the branch grows from the nutrients and vitality that comes from the root and fruit is produced out of that branch that would have been dead if it had not been grafted into a root. So that's the idea here. And you Gentiles and me too, we are wild olive branches grafted in and we are cherishing in the nourishment that comes from God's promise to the patriarchs fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so, so Paul says, do not be arrogant. Don't be dismissive. Do not have a, a, an overworked case of superiority towards the branches. Why? Because in verse 18, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. You belong to a Jewish salvation. Again, Michael Byrd says, as Paul sees it, Gentiles abandoned their religion. This is a great, this is amazing. As Paul sees it, Gentiles abandoned their religion when they accept the gospel. Pagan Greeks would abandon their religion 
when they accept the gospel. But observant Jews who accept the gospel don't change religions, but reconfigure the religion they already have with Christ as the fulfillment. So pagans who worship Greek gods, they were converting. Jews were not converting. They were continuing in the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. If you don't receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior as a Jew, you're stopping at the very place where God's promises are being fulfilled and coming to fruition. That's the idea Paul gives us here. So, again, there should be no superiority in Gentiles. We share in a salvation that has Jewish roots. We should not be dismissive of God's purposes. And the heart of God is not for us to glory in their fall, but to eagerly desire their salvation and their coming to their Messiah. And Paul says, who knows what might happen if they did do that. If their rejection means our salvation, what would their acceptance mean but the resurrection of the dead at the end? Now, one theologically minded ob objector might say, well, wait a second, though. Isn't it God's purpose? Isn't this God's purpose that Jews fall and, and um, I get in? I mean, isn't that what election's about? I'm in, I, I'm in by God's plan, his choice. And, and, Jew, and Jews are out. This is simply the plan of God, Paul. Paul feels that objection in verse 19. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul says, that is true. They were broken off, but why? notice why they were broken off. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. So it seems to me that this objector wants to justify his, his feelings of superiority by appealing to God's plan or God's election. And he says, well, it's the plan of God. They were broken off so that I might be grafted in according to God's good plan. And Paul says, that's true. But note why they were broken off. They were broken off not because they were Jews, but because of their unbelief. They were broken off by unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So Paul says, don't feel special about yourself, Gentile. The only reason you're in is by faith. And the reason that these branches who are broken off are out is because of unbelief. So the reason they're out is unbelief. The reason we're in is by faith. And faith, by the way, as we've said many times, is receptive. Faith is receiving something. And this means we have no confidence in ourselves as Christians. We do not boast in ourselves. All we are doing is we are receiving the undeserved mercy and grace of God as a Christian, which will subsequently transform us. Nevertheless, we do receive it by faith, and we remain by faith. Amen?
So here's the proper perspective for us then. The proper perspective for us Gentiles is to look at how God has acted in salvation history and how God is in himself. Verse 21. For if God... So, by the way, don't become proud. So the the idea here is Gentiles ought not to have a feeling of superiority against Jews. What you need to have is fear of the Lord. Why is that? Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So if he didn't spare Jewish people, then he's not going to spare Gentiles. It is not beyond God to cut people off, whether Jew or Gentile. Determined, the way he determines that is by faith or unbelief. Verse 22. Note then, the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness towards you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. God is kind and severe. And he is severe towards unbelieving Jews by taking them out of the root of salvation history. But he is kind towards those who have a receptive heart towards Jesus Christ, receiving the undeserved mercy and grace. Douglas Moe. In his commentary writes, This is a warning to the Gentile, the Gentile believer, who may presume on God's goodness. For the goodness of God is not simply a past act or an automatic benefit on which the believer can rest secure. It is also a continuing relationship in which the believer must remain. I want to pull two threads from this verse. Verse 22. Note what Paul says in verse 22 at the end. Kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. I I have come to believe, and you can try to feel free to convince me otherwise, but I've come to believe that the believer's security is conditional upon remaining in Christ through faith and and obedience. It's conditioned upon remaining in Christ through faith and obedience. In chapter 8, Paul has said, So then, brothers, speaking to Christians, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So those who have the Holy Spirit, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Why is that? Because living according to the flesh is very deceptive. And it has a hardening effect on people. And over time, if you live according to the flesh, flesh flesh-like things become commonplace. And that commonplaceness hardens a person. And hardening leads eventually to unbelief and being cut off. 
Let's turn briefly, if you would just turn with me to John 15. I believe this is what Jesus is instructing his disciples here. In John 15, right at the beginning, he says, by the way, we've just established here that the only way to have the vitality and life that comes from God is to be connected to him. And the way that you're connected to him is through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it might bear more fruit. So if you're a non-fruit bearer, because you've lost faith in Jesus Christ, he will take you away. He goes on to say, already though, you, you Christian, you are pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, I've taught you that prayer before, aptat. This is from John Piper. Aptat, an acronym, A-P-T-A-T, based on this passage. This is, this is a common prayer for me now, and I commend it to you. The A is acknowledging to God in prayer that apart from him you can do nothing. The P is to pray for God's help. In a specific situation, the T is then to trust God specifically for that thing. The A is then to act and do what you need to do in trust, and then afterwards, you thank God because he is the vine who gives you life and ability. And it's only from his, it's his breath in our lungs. It is his strength in our arms. It's, it's his vitality in our soul. Remember, Christianity is nothing less than the life of God in the soul of man. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and it, and it withers. And, its branches, um, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. This is a command to abide in Christ's love through faith and obedience. In verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And this is not meant to strike, to make you afraid. This is not meant to make you scared. It's to bring joy, knowing, knowing that life comes from Christ and that you can abide in him. And you can derive life from Christ through faith and obedience in him. In verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. 
and that your joy may be full. It is a joyful thing to abide and continue in Christ. The enemy, though, knows the thing that keeps you connected. And the thing that keeps you connected to Christ is faith. That's the receptive part. And the enemy will attack your faith in Jesus Christ any which way. As I said before, he'll use the flesh to create fleshliness in you. And living according to the flesh will make fleshliness commonplace. And when fleshliness becomes commonplace, unbelief is one step closer. He will use sorrow in your heart. And he will sow seeds of doubt in you so that the whisper of Satan will say in your heart, Did God really say? Did God really say this? He will try everything he can and subtly he will do so to take your faith in Christ away. Just like Jesus said, some seeds that fell on the ground, I think it is, Satan takes and snatches away what was sown in their hearts. So this is a call to persevere in Christ. If you, when sorrows like sea billows roll, or if you are experiencing intense attacks on your faith and doubt what you do, first of all, you throw yourself on the mercy of God. And you trust in him and you fight for faith. You fight for faith. Strengthen your weak knees. Strengthen that which remains is about to perish. Do not let, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Satan to sow seeds of doubt and spiritual apathy in your heart that take root. You fight for faith. Paul says, I press on towards the goal, towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. You continue and you fight in faith, knowing that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And that's a promise. Persevere in faith, hope, and love. Because we have a trustworthy God. The second thread I'd like to pull here, the first one was, you need to persevere. And it's your, so that your joy might be full in the Lord. The second thread I'd like to pull is the character of God in this passage. He says, note then the kindness and severity of God. God is kind, amen? God is so patient with me. And I've constantly through my inadequacies, through my failures in the past. I, I am an inadequate human being, constantly failing. And I've told you this before, I have a slow mind, a dull tongue, a cold heart at times, and God is very patient with me. He is very kind, and he has given me blessing upon blessing in life, not least the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is kind. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is good. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen? So 
God in Christ Jesus is very kind, and he is good. However, note the kindness and severity of God. Far too much preaching and teaching today focuses on only the kindness of God and not the severity of God. Whatever happened to the fear of the Lord? Whatever happened to the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Whatever happened to that? Whatever happened to this is the one upon whom I will look, the one who trembles at my word? Whatever happened to that? We, we have majored in evangelicalism on the kindness of God, but what of the severity of God? What of the fear of the Lord? Note, yes, the kindness of God, but note also the fear of the Lord. And some people will, will look at things in the Bible and say, well, I would never worship a God like that. You're, my, my, the thing I say now to them is not, oh, but you have to see how good he is over here. No, I would say to them, well, I would not want to be on the wrong side of a God like that. C.S. Lewis, he is dangerous, but he is good. Typifies God. A dangerous God who, when he was in the wilderness, wouldn't even let people go to the mountain, lest they die if they touch it. The dangerous God whose presence is awful and awesome, and dark, and mysterious, and deep, and it would melt you. That kind of God, the kindness and severity of God, the bigness of God, the majesty of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, take those two things with you from verse 22. Fight for faith and persevere in Christ and abide in him. Number two, note the kindness, but also know the severity of God. And you must continue in his kindness as a Christian. Always looking to Christ, not yourself. Now, in verses 23 and 24 then, going back to the issue at hand is the Jews. Again, God has, and what has he done? Then in verse 7, they were hardened. Verse 11, 7. God gave them a spirit of stupor. He blinded them. He made them deaf. He hardened them. Is this forever? Paul says no. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut by what is a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? They belong in this salvation anyhow. And it's easy for God to graft them back in. All they need to do is reach out to their Messiah in faith. The harder thing, if I could say it that way, would be to take Gentile pagans and graft them in, contrary to nature, to a cultivated olive tree. 
Michael Bird again in his uh, commentary on Romans puts it perfectly. He says, if God can bring pork eating, idol worshiping, and bisexual pagans into his new covenant people, a hard thing to do, how much more can he incorporate the people who already possess an adoption to sonship, divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, temple worship, the promises of the patriarch, and shared ancestry with the Messiah into his renewed covenant people? A comparatively easier thing to do. So, the kindness of God is available to all, Paul is saying to the Gentiles, who do not become arrogant towards the branches. Do not become arrogant or dismissive towards the scope of salvation history. Understand that Jesus came as the fulfillment to a long and old story. And you become part of that story, though, and you remain in that story, not through your ancestry and not through your works, but through faith in one man, Jesus Christ. And there is no hope without him. So, yes, to them were given the patriarchs, the glories, and the covenants, but without Christ, there is no hope. He is our only hope in life and death. Amen? Amen. Next week, we'll get into the final word on Israel, their partial hardening, and the full salvation of Israel. But for now, let's close in a word of prayer. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only wise God, be power and glory and majesty and dominion now, before all time, and forevermore. Amen? Amen. If anyone would like special prayer, I would love to pray with you. God bless you.